0: uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have spoken to us. Uh, You've spoken us in the past through your prophets, and you have spoken to us most definitively and perfectly in your Son, the Son who is the radiance of your glory, who is the exact imprint of your nature, the one who has made purification for our sins, and by whom we can even come into your presence this morning and hear your words and receive them as words of grace, words of encouragement, words of challenge and growth, knowing that your work that you have begun in our lives or doing in our lives will continue to to bring to an end, a fruition to a, a desired goal. And so we sit here this morning, awaiting that goal, participating in it waiting for what you will do in us. And so we need you to speak. We need you to operate within us by the power of your spirit. Would you energize us? Would you animate us to live this week in such a way that it would honor you, that it would show and demonstrate your ongoing work and formation of your son inside in each one of us? And so use this time your word, uh, me, as your messenger as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, uh, I am—I have three weeks here, so please come back. Uh, three weeks, uh, we're going to try to make our way through Galatians chapter 5. I'm not sure exactly how far we'll get, we're going to do our best. I, prior, the last few months, I had, had a chance to kind of hit on different, we looked at 2, 3, and 4, and then... Uh, have done now as I have a little stretch, I wanted to kind of use these few weeks to, to kind of work through this incredible passage where Paul begins to, in more practical terms, speak to them about how it is that these are to live. And so Galatians chapter five, verses one through 15. This is the word of the Lord for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And if the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only well, we do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole loss fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbors yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So we come to this passage, it's an interesting one and has some teeth to it, some phrases that might get our attention and as well they should. But, but Paul, as he's writing to them, as we've talked about in the past, this is a church that he had established on the gospel of faith in Christ alone. And others had come in and begun to infiltrate, bringing back in Old Testament Judaism, different aspects of the law and saying, you know what Christ, faith in Christ is important and certainly necessary but it's not sufficient and there are these other parts that you if you truly want to be a part of the family if you really want to be in you need to integrate these into your life these are necessary aspects of you and paul as he's been laying out his doctrine for them comes to this passage and we see that he is beginning to talk and he shifts in the language now is the language of freedom that he wants them to get you see There's two different approaches to life that we can take two different approaches to God who are living in relationship with him and both of them enslaved. Neither one of them are really effective and they don't work. And he addresses both of these kind of ditches, if you will, of the Christian life of of appealing and living in light of who God is. One is legalism and the other one is license. One is living in accordance with and under and adhering to the laws as a means of one's own righteousness, And the other one is living in spite of God's laws. It's living in presumption to his grace. And if you will, ignoring the laws of God. And so Paul writes to them and he addresses both of these. He says, whether you live by the rules or in spite of the rules, you need to hear this is the real gospel because it cuts between both ditches, legalism and license. And it brings real freedom. And this week, we're going to look at the first half of this, the the legalism that he has been speaking against as he continues to unpack. And he brings it in the form of freedom. He says, I'm going to talk about legalism in this language of the freedom that the gospel brings over and against being adhering to the laws. And so we're going to look at that. And next week, we'll look at. How the gospel brings freedom over the enslavement of seeing the law as a license to live in opposition to it or or in spite of it. And so freedom is the, the resounding theme in this passage that we have. It opens it in verse one that Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. So, as he introduces, as he moves to this territory, it's freedom. And then he ends it in verse 13. He talks about freedom again. You are called the Freedom Brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That freedom is a theme that's here. And for us to understand what he's talking about, we need to understand what he means by freedom. Now, in, in our world, in the free world, this, this theme, this idea, this concept is huge and it's pervasive. And it's very, very important to understand our society, to understand our nation, to understand our history. But the problem is sometimes our notions of of freedom from a political or social aspect can kind of integrate into our understanding of this freedom here and the two can kind of taint each other. And so we need to understand what is the freedom that's being talked about? Is this a a political, social freedom? Is there something more that that Paul is talking about? So we need to kind of extract these ideas or concepts of freedom from what Paul is referring to, because Paul is talking about something distinctly different from the freedom that we would talk about in terms of a political or social or economic world. And we'll talk just briefly about that. It's a huge theme that we need to get a hold of a number of years ago. I don't know, three or four years ago, I was watching the movie The Ten Commandments. You guys have probably seen it with Charles and Heston and, and everything. I was sitting through. I don't know if I watched the whole thing or not, but I watched a chunk of it and watched, got to the end of the movie. And of course, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating story, right? And as the degree to which it reflects the biblical account. Okay, okay yeah, God's people are being rescued and redeemed. And this is what he does. He redeems them out of slavery in Egypt. And of course, you know, there's Charles and Heston, the big hair and all, and the glorious face. And you got, you know, Yul Brenner chasing him on his chair and all that kind of stuff. So you, you move through the story. It's, it's, it's a great story. And you come to the end of the story, OK? That's people have been rescued. And, and, and you have this scene. I still remember sitting and watching this. And I didn't remember seeing it before. And you have Moses giving his final words to Joshua, OK? And so Moses is speaking to Joshua. And these were the final words in this Hollywood version of the Exodus. He says, go and proclaim freedom throughout the land. Go and proclaim freedom throughout the land. I'm sitting here watching and my son's sitting right next to me. We kind of look at each other and go, really? Is that what Moses said to Joshua? Is that the, the resound, the message that Moses had for Joshua? And we realized that what had taken place is there's this concept, right? A political social freedom was being kind of woven into this storyline. Because the freedom that's being talked about in scripture is a different kind of freedom. Is it integrated? Is it connected? Maybe It's a different kind of freedom. It's not a political freedom. It's not a social freedom from sort of some sort of externals that need to be protected from as incredible as those things are as incredible as the free freedom that we have even to worship here. The freedom that's being talked about is that much greater, that much more important for us to understand. It's not social freedom. It's not an ethnic freedom. It's not an economic freedom. It's not some sort of psychological freedom that protects us from, again, some external frames or structures that are out there. Are those important? Yes. Should we be concerned about them? Yes. But let's not confuse them with what Paul is referring to here. So what exactly is Paul talking about? It's not a political freedom. It's not a social freedom. What's well, a spiritual freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is a freedom that's bound up and tied into something that Christ has accomplished for us. and has to do with our relationship with, the God, with God. And in this context, he's using in relationship to the law. You're freed from having to live under the impossible weight of the law. You're freed from having to be on the unending self-righteous treadmill of your own works. It's freedom that's spiritual, that's real, that separates us, that gives us this relationship with him that Christ has, has fulfilled, has accomplished for us, we actually get to walk in here today and we get to enjoy the presence of God. We get to take pleasure in it. We get to delight in it. And we don't have to walk in here in fear because of this freedom that's been given to us. We get to come boldly and freedom, freely into the very presence of God because of this freedom that we have This freedom has been built upon something that Paul has already been talking about. Two doctrinal components. One is justification. That we have righteousness. We've been given this righteousness not based upon what we have done, but because of our faith in Christ. So this one component is justification that we're free now before God. We don't have to carry the weight of our sin. We don't have to abide by the laws in keeping ourselves and finding acceptance and security before God. The other component is adoption that we get to come now before God as his children that we've been adopted into his family freely we don't have to fend for ourselves anymore spiritually we've been given everything we need and so these are the components that Paul says see this this is the freedom we have freedom from our sin we'll look next week not freedom to sin but freedom from it And we've been given a place, a status in his household, in his family, as his children. We don't have to worry about. We don't have to fend for ourselves. It's a real spiritual freedom that the gospel brings in relationship to God, that our conscience has been cleansed. Our confession is a part of that, that we can come without condemnation now into his presence. This is a real freedom we have. It gives one acceptance and and access to God As well, it frees us from the dominion of Satan. It's a real dominion. And that's he has transferred us into the kingdom of his son. Another way to put this same thing is that outside of Christ, the people are in bondage. That outside of Christ, everyone is in bondage. That there is bondage to sin, bondage to the flesh bondage to the material of the world there's bondage to satan so that is a real bondage it's there as we look at the world around us the person inside of christ then they are not free truly in relationship with god before him they're bound and it's possible of course then to have other kinds of freedoms right political freedom but to still be bound spiritually to be bound by their own sin And we've tasted that. We know what that transition is like to be freed from our sin. And that's the freedom that Paul is talking about here. And that's the freedom that's going to that theme is going to cover this passage as we work through it this week and next week, because he wants them to catch that. If we're to lay out Galatians, you could break it down into three different sections. The first section, chapters one and two, where Paul lays out his authority as an apostle. We see his autobiographies. We see the history of Paul chapters one and two chapters three and four is his doctrinal argument as he presents justification adoption. He talks about Christ being formed in and his desire to see that take place in and through the truth of the gospel. So he lays down his argument, looking at Old Testament scripture and arguing with them in a doctrinal kind of way, a theological kind of way. And then as we come to chapter five and six, there's a shift as he builds on what he has already said and he wants to get them we shift to category of the Christian life to ethic, to the life in the spirit of God. Practically speaking now, what does it mean to live out of this reality of having been justified and adopted? What is the real experience now of the Christian living justified and adopted in God's family? What's the real experience? And he says the experience, I want you to see this, is the experience of freedom. In our lives, there's a freedom that you need to live in and will be kind of it'll be the basis by which the rest of your life will grow and you're going to have will be kind of a litmus test as well, because in this freedom, the, the thing he contrasted to is slavery in this section to the law, because as he writes to them, his concern for them, right, is that they have abandoned and left the gospel of faith in Christ behind. And now they're being tempted to add these other beliefs, the extra the extra elements of Old Testament law back in and he says the minute you begin to do that something happens to your freedom that you have in Christ and that freedom will affect your relationship with God vertically and it will affect your relationship with each other horizontally And so he writes to them because he knows that bad theology will not just corrupt one's relationship with God but the whole community of God's people and so he wants them to catch this theme of freedom and he addresses legalism and then he's going to address license. A few things we can look at this passage is that's helpful. First of all, we find out what the main issue is that he's addressing. If you was a presenting issue, what's the presenting issue for them? It's circumcision. OK, Old Testament law. What's the key thing you're supposed to add back in? If you do this, then you're really in circumcision is the point we see here. he says in verse two that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Because if you return to this adherence to this right, OK, if you accept it, which Makes us wonder, have they accepted it? We don't think so yet, but if you begin to go down this road, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So if you accept it, we learn that circumcision is the issue, the presenting issue for them. We also find that there's others who come in that are really trying to persuade them and trying to convince them otherwise. OK, and they're using any argument they can to kind of pressure them and force them to return to the use of the Old Testament law in their status with God. We also find that they're subversively teaching that Paul is still preaching circumcision, that somehow he's OK with this. And in verse 11, he says that if my brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? He said my persecution is connected with preaching for the gospel, which does not include circumcision. So. He, They're using him as kind of their, their ploy and they're misrepresenting his message. But Paul is confident of them that they'll land, in the, they'll land in the right place. But then in verse 12, we have a statement that that if you're reading on a Sunday morning, should just kind of wake you up. Where he makes a statement, of wish that those who unsettle you would go and emasculate themselves. And okay, we're not going to do a whole lot with that, but we're going to try to understand why That kind of language, one, we're we're reading it and talking about on Sunday because there's more behind that. And so that's we want to look at this as we think about this image, this theme of freedom, because my point this morning, the point that Paul is making is that the gospel frees us from legalism. It frees us from bondage, from having to maintain our own acceptance before God And that's what he wants them to hear, because the minute they begin to step backwards, the minute they begin to add some other rule, some other custom, something else outside of Christ, the whole system begins to come apart at the seams. And he wants to get that that across to them. He starts off. We have an interesting opening when he makes the statement, "For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore." There's a construction here that he uses twice in this section, and it's, it's virtually it's a statement of fact followed by a command. Okay, a statement of fact, a truth, for for freedom, Christ has set us free, and then a command, stand firm. Therefore, he uses it also in verse 13, and so it kind of brackets the packet, the the, the section. Okay, stand firm. Or basically, you've been set free, stand firm in that. And so that helps us understand this is a a statement. He wants them to hear this. This is, in fact, the first command that he gives them in in the letter. Stand firm in this truth. Stand firm in the truth that you have been freed. He kind of gets in their face, if you will. He gets in their grill. He goes, listen to me. This is what you need to do to stand firm in this truth. Because he wants them to understand the relationship between circumcision and the gospel. And first of all, he wants them to see that circumcision nullifies the gospel. It nullifies the work of Christ. It says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to everyone who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. He says that that if you add this back in, you're going down a road of which you can't return. Essentially, this is the argument of Paul's opponents, okay? Okay. He says, yes, they would say faith in Christ is necessary and it's good and you need that. But it's not enough. You need something more. And what you need truly to be in, truly to be in the family, truly to make sure you're secure in relationship with God. And by the way, this will help you in your status in the community horizontally. What you need is to return to the Old Testament law. And by the by use of the right of circumcision, you need to add to what Christ has done you need it as a necessary additive as a requirement for salvation in fact you need Moses to complete what Christ began and Paul's argument for them is this he says this is what they're telling you but don't miss this he says if you add one thing back in that circumcision then you're obligated to keep the whole thing you don't get to pick and choose you don't get to choose what it is the minute you begin to add one element, one aspect of the Old Testament law back in as a basis for your standing for God. That minute you're on the road to adding everything back in because you you're obligated at that point to keep the entire law. And it's a gradual, slippery slope down a road to a road. It sounds simple, right? Circumcision. But wait, there's more the road of Slavery, A returning to an adherence to rule after rule after rule to maintain your status before God. Because the minute you add one thing, you need the second thing and a third thing. And on and on and on it goes. That's the way human nature is. If it's based upon me, then I need more, not less. If I'm going to appeal and somehow uh, change my my, uh, position before God... Then it's more is necessary. And indeed, if I'm in a community of people, I want to look better before you. And so it's one thing after another. And so it nullifies Christ's work because it returns to slavery. And it's a gradual slippery slope down this line towards slavery. And he says, That's not freedom. The minute you go there, you're losing your freedom, the freedom that Christ has brought. And it renders Christ's work ineffective. He says that Christ will be of no advantage to you. There's no benefit at all what he brings once you add in human effort, something that we can do or add to it. See, it nullifies his work. It adds to his perfect work the touches of sinful humanity. You use this as an example, I was trying to, to work on this as a an example i i don't know a lot about art but okay if you use an example of a masterpiece something like a monet and i actually went online to look up some monets because i I, you know i didn't know a whole lot so i found one called water lilies and and maybe you've seen that this masterpiece of his and and you know i did I, i saw a kid's show once about the making of it or something you know but you have this masterpiece that that this artist has produced and it's finished And it's complete and i come and i'm i'm looking at this masterpiece and i see it and you know what it's kind of fuzzy it's not real clear i kind of see a bridge there i see some flowers but but it needs a little more clarity and i pull out my sharpie and i begin to say, you know what this this still needs a little bit of work so i'm gonna i'm gonna add some of my own touches to this masterpiece just to just enhance a little bit because i think it'll make it better And of course, you see what's taking place. What happens the very minute I add what I can bring to the table to this with my Sharpie onto this canvas of this perfect work. What's its value at that point after I've added in, you know, a red Sharpie and a blue Sharpie and a black Sharpie here and there? It's value becomes almost nothing. And you also understand what I've just done to the artist, right? I've offended him. Because I thought what he would needed to be done was something more that it wasn't finished yet. So I've offended somebody who really knows what's going on. What's the other thing it does? It underestimates, right, my ability to add anything to this piece of work. It underestimates and drastically misunderstands what it is I bring to the table, what I can do to this finished work. And that's indeed what had taken place there. And he says, do you see this? It it nullifies his work. It's offensive to him. And it misunderstands the place at which you stand and what you can really add. Can you really add anything at all that's going to enhance the perfect masterpiece, the work of Christ and the gospel? And he says, no, the minute you do, it will be of no advantage to you. In fact, he goes on to say, you have been severed. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. The minute you add something back in, you lose it. You don't lose your salvation. But the ground on which you stand theologically begins to crumble underneath you, because if it's placed back into your own ability, then guess what? That's that is um, eroding away even as we speak. So he says, then why would you do this? Return to this is a s- return to slavery. We're free from needing to improve. So why would you try? It's not even necessary to try to improve. And so the God in the gospel circumcision nullifies adding anything to what he has done will nullify that secondly circumcision and the cross are mutually exclusive the two can't go together in verse 11 we have this interesting accusation and in, in his his defense where he says brothers I still if I still preach circumcision why am I still being persecuted in the case in that case the offense of the cross has been removed you see there the argument, right? They're saying, well, he's in favor and he goes, no, 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 I'm not in favor of it. I wouldn't be persecuted, right? I'm persecuted because I believe that the gospel of faith and trust in Christ alone is sufficient and you don't need to add anything to it. And there's an offense an offensiveness there. And if you think about it, he said what he's saying is I'm persecuted because of the offense of the cross alone. If you take the cross and you add circumcision, it's no longer offensive. But the cross, in and of itself, he says, is offensive. The Greek word is scandalon. It's a scandal. It's, a, it's an offensive to human nature. This cross is. And the question is, how is it offensive? In what way is the cross? Does the cross offend? Certainly, is a symbol, it's a repulsive one. It's one that's a picture of capital punishment, one of the most horrible, horrific ways of killing that we've had in history, that has been around, that's there as a means of execution to the Romans, it would have been an awful image to the Jews as well as an imagery of a curse that was there. And so it is a repulsive image, but it's more than just the image itself of what it represents in that time. It's an image. It symbolizes something else that is antithetical, that is opposite to circumcision. And you see what the cross says is a real offense against man, isn't it? It offends our sensibilities because what's the message of the cross when you look at it and you recognize what it stands for, that a man needed to come, a man who was God and sacrificed his own life and was brutally killed. It demonstrates the extent to which God had to go to save humanity. It gives us a picture of the extent to which God would have to go to save us. Because the fact was, we would have nothing to contribute, nothing that we could do. We couldn't minimize what was necessary to do that. And so it gives us this picture of this. This it's offensive to us because it demonstrates this. We couldn't lift a finger. We can't bring anything to the table to change our position before God. And that's where we are. And that's the message of the cross. And the message of circumcision is what? You can add something. Yes, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. You can add something that will help. And Paul says, no, the cross is no longer offensive. If that's what you think, if you think you can do something or add something there, the right of circumcision would add nothing. It could add nothing and something to, would be necessary to add to Christ. It's already been done. It's already complete. You see, nothing is so wounded demands pride as this message. Nothing is so wounding to an American's pride when they say you are incapable of doing anything in relationship to God. You have no power, no ability. Nothing within yourself, no way to lift yourself up out of your own bootstraps with your own strength to reach God. It's offensive to humanity. It's offensive to modern Americans. But that is the truth. That is the message of the gospel. And the minute we add anything back in, we undermine that. You see, a crossless Christianity leaves men and women helpless in the face of sin. It does no good. And this gospel is a message of freedom. It says you don't have to follow down the line of slavery back to the law. It says that the best place to be is under the cross. The best place to be is to have my pride crushed and to be humbled before the reality of the holy God and his perfect work that I can't add anything to. The best place to be is to be freed from my own pride and my own ability to truly be humble before the cross. That's where Paul takes us to be rescued and freed here in the true status of where we stand. So it's gospel. The circumcision nullifies, leads to enslavement. We see that at the same time, it's antithetical. The two don't go together. We don't add anything else. And then finally, it leads to an enslavement that's, that's no different from the world around them. It leads to an enslavement that's really no different from any other message that any other person in human worldly system could have. Now, where do you find that? That's our verse 12. This is an interesting verse where he says, I wish that those, okay, speaking about those who unsettle you, these teachers who are coming in to change and avert the gospel and undermine it, I wish they would go and emasculate themselves. Now, can you say that in church? I don't know. I think so. But what's he talking about there? What's going on? Is he just upset? Is he just angry and thrown out kind of? Tweets and Facebook, you know, messages without any kind of consideration—is he out of control? Or is there something to be said to understand what, what's really going on here? Is he upset? Absolutely. Is he frustrated? Absolutely. Is this just kind of willing? And I'm going to throw this out and, and say this because I'm mad and angry and there's a malicious comment. And I think not. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, this is God's word. There's more here than just. Being angry. There's something that, that they got that a little bit of help I think we can get to get underneath the message. It's not a thoughtless message that he brings, it's something he wants to get their attention, yes, but he's comparing something. An important understanding of the backdrop. If you remember, The Galatians, Paul, on his first missionary journey, as he preached to them, many of them were Gentiles out of pagan religions, out of these mystery religion, these cults with a variety of bizarre kinds of practices that were very much a part of appealing to appeasing, finding acceptance in the gods. These practices, and there's one particular cult, Cybelean cult, as we've learned about, that would have been very much a part of the area, the region in which they lived. And this cult, a part of the practice, was... A ritual castration that there would be literally this is a part of their worship on an annual basis. Priests would castrate themselves, that they would do that. That was a part of their worship. And what Paul is saying, you put this in the back of your mind and consider when he as he writes this to them. They're seeing this. They know this. They've watched the ways worldly human made religions do this. How do they appease the gods? What do they do? What kinds of extremes do they go to? And Paul is saying, I wish that these who were who are upsetting you would do this. Why? There's a comparison he's making and he wants you. He wants us to see. He wants them to see it's the same thing. There's no different. Once you begin here, this is where it goes. The spiritual guides, if this is their message, they are no better spiritual guides than the spiritual guides you would have had in the cult that you were part of. Because guess what? It's your best attempts to appease God. It's your best attempt in whatever radical way that you can go about it. And if they would do that, you would see that this is where this goes. It doesn't stop simply here. The minute it's placed upon mankind, on us to earn our our status before God, it doesn't end. It's a slippery slope. And he wants them, by example, to see that the spiritual guides, these opponents that are coming in and averting the gospel, Maligny the Gospels are no better guides. In fact, that's where they're taking them. This practice would serve in the same way that these and these ideologist religions. It's there. No laws, no rights, no practices will bring freedom. And so he uses this example to help them see that. And we see he wants them to see the freedom. That's not freedom. That's not what it is. Freedom is resting in complete what Christ has done. It's not having to compare myself to others. Have I done enough stuff, enough things, enough practices to be able to find my status for God and be able to to rest there? And he says, that's not freedom. It's not what it is. It nullifies the gospel. It ruins the masterpiece. It's antithetical to the cross The cross is offensive. And we stand there at the same time. It will lead you to a road that you can't even imagine where it takes you back to worldly systems and arrangements in which humans are central in in reaching God. So here's the question for us this morning. The question is this. Okay, this is the point. As he says, they're presenting issue with circumcision, right? That was it. And he says, don't go there. Don't go down that road. Stand firm. Don't give in to this yoke of slavery, which is by saying if you go down this road, you're starting this way. But the question for us is, what does it mean for us to stand firm? Firm against legalism. What does it mean for us to stand firm against a yoke of slavery that would be placed as we live through our lives? I'm pretty certain that none of us are seeing or viewing circumcision as a as a right in any kind of way that would save us. But I would guarantee you, because I know me so well, that we have our what do you want to say? We have things we have that we look to. That we hold on to in our own lives, rights, practices, behavior, whatever that we use to prop ourselves up before God and to elevate ourselves above others. And the minute we begin to fall into that kind of thinking that we need to add something what Christ has done, and that becomes a way of thinking for us, a way of appealing to God, finding acceptance in him, in what I do and I bring. We are falling back into the exact same place, a kind of slavery. It's not freedom. It's one that we create for ourselves. You see, there is a vertical and horizontal dimension to this. As i said it affects our, diver- our vertical dimension, how we see ourselves in light of God. And it's, it affects the way we see ourselves in light of each other. And so the question is, What? what are those things for us? What are those things for you that you look to good things? that you use to prop yourself up. Now, I can't look into your soul. I can barely look into my own and understand the way this operates, but I know it's there. So I have a few questions I'm going to ask you and just allow them to kind of ring through your mind and and ask God, say, okay, is there something that's going on? Is there some form of legalism, something that I'm looking to that's here? Because all these questions generally have to do with how I perceive others how I see others will tell me something about how I see myself and how I see my relationship with God. First question, what am I critical of in other people? What do I find myself criticizing people inside and outside the church about? What am I critical about? Second, what side do I want people to see of me? What side do I want people to see of me? What side do I hide? What side do I want them to see? I want to put forward in this this case. We realize that as we find criticism, as we find hiding going on, what we're really trying to do is is appeal to God and and, and change our status before each other. What sins do I minimize and which ones do I maximize? How do I see that? I like to see sins of other people as much greater than my own sins. And again, it's some way to change my status or my need for Christ or my need for the cross to minimize my own sin, my own standing, my own position and to see others in a different way. And then finally, what good works do I minimize and which ones do I maximize? Are you trying to be perfect? Are you trying to achieve perfection on your own? It's there See these questions. They answer these questions. We work through them, reveal the kinds of things that we use to elevate ourselves and put others down it, it affects our relationship with God. At the same time, it affects our relationship with each other. And you see what's going on in Galatians in the church here is that competition begins to come in and comparison begins to come in the minute you begin to introduce these ideas. The minute they begin to kind of tear down the whole fabric of the community that's there. And God's gracious to reveal the times and ways that we see what we're trying to prop ourselves on and to come to the cross humbly and say, I have nothing to bring. Nothing to weave my own righteousness. Nothing that I can do that will truly achieve a standing before you that I deserve. And so there it is. That's my status as we think in relationship to others. And we look for those things. But there's a final one I want to leave you with. How do we see legalism in our own lives? There's another way there's a negative as we see criticism. We see hiding. We see those things in relationships with others. It will reveal forms of legalism, forms of things that we're trusting. But there's another one that Paul gives us in verse six in verse six. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Wait a second. Circumcision or uncircumcision counts. That doesn't mean anything. Basically, he says that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you are or you're not. It doesn't count. It has no value. It just is. It's there. What does count? What counts is faith working itself out through love. What's he saying there? He's in that faith that, that that what really counts that freedom Okay. how do you find freedom in a person's life? How do you know if a person is truly spiritually free before God? He says it's this. When you find love, when you find faith working itself out in love, that's how you know that there's freedom. It's a a diagnostic on the other side. It's not a negative. It's a positive diagnostic. Do you find do we find love or do we find criticism? Do I find love or do I find hiding in comparison? And he says, look at this. This is how you know whether indeed there is real freedom in our lives. I look at my own life. I find that the moments where criticism is so much more prevalent than love, when hiding is so much more prevalent than compassion or helping others, when I want to try to prop up my own life, it's there. I find, ah, I'm not living in the freedom of the gospel. And so what brings that about is this freedom, and Paul says, unless you have the right stuff in the soil, okay, you're not going to get the right product. And so freedom is an aspect of the soil, of the gospel that brings, and we get to live in love. Now, note he didn't command them to love. Okay, he called them to live in freedom and a byproduct, a fruit of living in the freedom of the gospel is love. Next week, we're going to continue on this thing. We're going to talk about the other side of the the coin, if you will, the, the other bitch that we can fall in. Legalism is one. License is another. How do we live on the other side? If we have freedom, then does that mean, right, can I do whatever I want? He's going to give us a good answer to that question. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this freedom. Um, I, I, I struggle to say even that I understand what that is, but we sit here today in it help us father to be quick to repent of the things that we hold on to because human nature is still there um, help us to see them repent all ourselves fall again at the cross help us to see again the greatness and the glory of your grace of what you have done for us of the cross offensive to many a glorious picture of your grace to those few who see the need of it and find themselves completely empty handed. And so that's where we find ourselves today for those wrestling through this. Guide them, draw them to you, to the end of themselves, to the very place at which they will find life and freedom in the gospel. Walk with us as as your people. We have many needs and I present them to you as well. Pray for the St. Louis group as they are in St. Louis this morning, worshiping and strengthen them and use them this week. Pray for other needs in our congregation, Eva Kramer and Beck Taylor. Pray for Dave Upchurch's mom as well and their medical needs. Pray for us throughout the course of this summer as people come, as people go, as we worship in various places, as we vacation, as we rest, that truly it would be restful for us and that you would keep us as your people and continue to help us to walk with you in this great message of the gospel. Help us to go now with this message of of your freedom. What an incredible message we have to bring to a world who is enslaved to many things that bring death. And help us to bring life in that place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. ask you to stand, invite you to stand for the benediction.